So let me just jump right in because I have a whole lot of material to cover today. Um, we're doing four weeks together um, on the whole gospel for the whole world, and today we're looking at God's vision for cultural reconciliation. Let me just remind us again why we're doing this. Um, we, have, we have five different strategic working groups that are working right now to help us think about our shared future together as a church. Um, and this is the objective of this fifth working group, to adapt thirds people and programs to better reach out with the gospel to thirds increasingly diverse local community, particularly internationals and the non-church, so that third reflects the diverse community around us and can witness to the power of the gospel more clearly. You know, I think that the phrase that I'd like to draw your attention to here is this, third's increasingly diverse local community. What does that mean exactly? What are we talking about? Um, let me just share some data with you, both I'll start macro level nationally and then work more locally. So nationally, think about this, in 1960, so just over 50 years ago, less than 15% of the American population was non-white. Just 15%. And of that 15%, um, the vast majority of that 15% was African-American. In the last, uh, whatever years it has been since then, 57 years, there have been dramatic changes. The African-American population has increased by more than 35%, Native American by 50%, Latino population by 142%, and the Asian American population in America has increased 185%. The, US census, the most recent U.S. Census data was released last year, and the recent data now says by 2045, by 2045, the vast majority of Americans will be non-white. And last year was the first year in the history of the United States that the majority of the children born, so right now, Majority of children under one are non-white. And by 2020, just three years, the majority of all children in the United States will be non-white. So you can see, this is a pretty dramatic change that is happening and is continuing to happen. Now on a local level, in our 15-mile radius, uh, the census shows that in the coming years, the only ethnicity that is predicted to decrease are white people. And by 2020, so just three years, whites will represent less than 55% of the population within the 15-mile radius of the church. It, just to put this in a lo very local context, at Freeman High School, so the high school, how many, any of your kids went to Freeman High School or you went to Freeman High School? So at Freeman High School, right now, over 20 languages are represented in the student body. So this is kind of amazing, right? This is amazing. And yet, despite these realities, uh, the American church has pretty much stayed exactly the same throughout all of these many years. You know, Dr. King had this famous statement that you probably know that he wrote in his letter from the Birmingham jail that the most segregated hour of America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, and that's still true. In fact, if you define an ethnically diverse congregation as one in which no one cultural group is more than 80% of the congregation, so not one group is more than 80%, I wonder if you could guess how many of the 300,000 American congregations in the United States could be defined as culturally diverse. Anyone guess a percentage? How did you know that? It's on the handout, right, 5.5. <laughs> Dr. Payne, you are brilliant. So here's, here's the question, okay? This is really, okay, so all that's interesting, right? But here's the question. Should we care about this? Like, as Christians, is this even important? Does thinking about the changes in culture and 
diverse racial groups and diverse cultures around us. Is this even integral to the gospel? Like, is this even important in the biblical story? Because if it isn't, if it's just like a political agenda, diversity, and that sort of thing, then we shouldn't care about it. If it's just something that's foisted upon us by the broader culture, then we shouldn't care. But if it is something that is truly biblical, that we're called to think about cultural reconciliation as Christians, then who thinks we should think about it if it's truly biblical, right? We're, we're Bible people. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at, I believe it is biblical because of the four-chapter gospel. Were you at the sermon last week? You hear the creation? See if you can remember it. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or new creation. This four-chapter gospel. And so what I want to do is I want to walk that through that four-chapter gospel with you and look at this great theme of cultural diversity and cultural reconciliation that really literally weaves throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end, from the first chapter to the last, and then look at the implications for us, okay? So I am going to give you a whirlwind tour of the entire Bible um, in just a few minutes, okay? So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them. If you don't, just listen, and I know you have most, most of you have the Bible memorized, so just go through it in your, in, in your brains, okay? So first we get, let's begin with the beginning. Let's begin with Genesis 1, the Old Testament foundation to God's vision for cultural reconciliation. This is an amazing verse and probably one of the most important uh, verses in all of Scripture. Um, let me back up here. This isn't working really well. Can you go? There we go. Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, there's a couple of very important things we see here in this text. First of all, we see that every person is created in the image of God, or in the Latin, that's imago Dei. We see every single person. One of the main points of the Hebrew creation narrative is not to distinguish one group of humans from other group of humans, but to describe God's reign and rule over all of humanity. Now, this is very, actually very different from other sacred texts and other sacred histories. The Egyptians, for example, have their own creation narrative or creation myth, and in that, it's God makes the Egyptians, and the evil enemy of the gods makes everyone else. <laughs> and this is, in many sacred histories are like this. But what's so significant about the Bible is that this is the Jewish Hebrew text, and yet in the very beginning, we see that God creates every person in God's image. I love this quote from John Stott. He says, the Bible begins with the universe, not just with the earth. It begins with the earth, not with Palestine. And it begins with Adam, which means human, not with Abraham. Do you understand that? It's a universal text. Now, so, so that's what, the, what we see here first. The second thing we see is that God's image, let us make man in our image. God's image is reflected in differentiation, in diversity. We see that in two ways. First, we see it in male and female. It shows that God cannot be imaged through a single homogenous representative. Thank God, right, women? You know, 
You know, God's image cannot be imaged in a single homogenous representative. There needs differentiation in this case of gender, and that's beautiful. But we also see it here in culture. God says here, he says, be fruitful and increase and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So what we see is that God's intention from the very start is that humans spread out over the face of the earth, which would inevitably mean cultural diversity. It would mean linguistic and cultural and uh, culinary uh, difference. I mean, just imagine if someone spread out and lived in the, the steppes of Siberia versus the plains of Africa. You'd imagine that people would begin to look different and behave different and speak differently and cook differently. So God intends this spreading and filling of creation from the very start. So we see that from the very beginning, all people from every culture are made in God's image and that God's image cannot be fully reflected in humanity except through differentiation and diversity. And that God intends that from the very start. It's really beautiful. Well, next text we see in Genesis that I think is significant is Genesis 10. This is one of those boring uh, chapters in the Bible that you often flip over because it's a list of names. But this is actually a highly significant text in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's this summarizing verse that happens over and over again in Genesis 10. It says, from the coastlands, from these coastlands, the peoples spread. Remember, God, that was God's command to spread. The people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. There's, this fra- there's these four terms. Cl- family, which is mishpaha, language, which is lasan, territory, which is erase. I'm very conscious of the fact there's a Hebrew scholar in the room, and I'm very, I'm sorry for ways I may be mispronouncing Hebrew, my friend. Um, and nation, which is goy. This is significant because you see the way the Bible classifies the diverse peoples of the earth is a combination of anthropological, linguistic, political, and geographic elements. Right? We see scripture speaks about cultures, languages, nationalities, boundaries. We see in Genesis 10, uh, later in Acts 17, it says, God made from one man every nation goy of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. The term that the Bible uses that's in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, is the word ethnos. This is the word that is used throughout the Bible to describe the nations, the ethnicities, the cultures of the earth, and that God categorizes people in this way. Now, what we don't see in the Bible, what is very notably absent, is the term race. Race is not a term that is used in Scripture Race, as we use the term today, categorizes people on genetic differences. Genetic differences, things like uh, physical differences and mental and developmental and creative capacities. Factually speaking, hear me on this, factually speaking and biblically, there is one race, the human race, and there is a multiplicity of cultures within that human race. It was not until, this is an interesting fact, it wasn't until the 18th century, that anthropologists began to speak scientifically about race to differentiate people groups. And do you know why they did so? It was to justify enslavement and the mistreatment of certain people. So, for example, we have something, something happened in 1787 called the Three-Fifths Compromise. Did you learn that, about that in, in American history? 
this was a, the 1787 Constitutional Convention in which it was, a, it was a, a brokering between the northern and southern states in which they agreed to count black Americans as only three-fifths of a person because their race necessitated that they were fundamentally different than another people group. So you can see this was profoundly unbiblical. That there is one race from one humanity that God has created that has a multiplicity of cultures that God intends. The desire to make distinctions among human beings or to separate races from another is part of our sinful humanity, but it is not biblical. And so that's what we see in Genesis 10, the common humanity of all peoples. Then, of course, we see Babel. This is one of the great, horrible events of humanity in Scripture. What happens in Genesis 11, we see now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, given what, everything I've just described, what do you think is wrong with that statement? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Anybody have a thought on that? Go out and make disciples of all nations. Yeah, Jesus hasn't said that yet, but, <laughs> but you're right, Lori, that is coming. But what about what has already happened in Genesis? He said to spread out and diversify and differentiate all over the face of the earth. And what are they doing instead? They are huddling, you know. They're, they're, they're gathering together. And they, they, they are resisting the, the dispersing that God intended. They're working against God's creation. They're rebelling against him. They're rejecting his rule. They're, sought, they're, they're essentially seeking to consolidate themselves into a monocultural society. And this made God mad. They're resisting his purposes. He says here, he says, nothing, come, let us go down, confuse their languages. This is only one, the beginning of what they will do. He's basically saying, look, they're going to thwart my plan. They're going to thwart my plan to see the people spread out over the face of the earth and diversify in all the nations. And so, I love this, it says, so let us go down. This is so great because like they're building this enormous tower and God's like, let's go down and look at their little itsy-weensy tower that they think is so big. So he goes down, and he confused their languages and then disperses them. Now, two things are happening here. On the one hand, God is judging them and turning them over into confusion and division. But at the same time, through his judgment, what is God doing? Melissa, you're amazing. Did you hear what Melissa Lincoln said? She said God is accomplishing his purposes. He is enforcing the scattering that he has intended from the very start. Do you see that? He's judging the people, but at the same time, he is doing what his intention was from the beginning. He is creating the cultural diversity that was intended from the very start. What we see is that one of the effects of, hu of sinful humans is that we will always tend towards self-securing homogeneity out of fear and self-preservation. We will always tend towards that as sinful human beings. And we also see that an attempt to have unity without God in the gospel always results in destruction. It's stupid. It will never work. God will judge it. So we see that from these first few chapters, okay? And then finally, I, I know I'm spending a lot of time in Genesis, but they're just such important chapters. Genesis, we have the turning point here. Now, the Lord God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Isn't that so wonderful for Abraham and his family? I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse, and in you all the what? Families. It's that same word from Genesis 10. The families of the earth 
shall be blessed. So what do we see here? We see that God is beginning. We've seen creation, right? We've seen fall. Now here's redemption. We see God is beginning to restore his vision that the families, the nations of the earth would be gathered under his reign and under his rule for his glory. The Old Testament is like a really long car trip, like when you're a little kid and your family goes on a cross-country trip to Colorado. Did you ever go on one of those hateful things in the back of your mom dad's Volvo? That happened to me many times every summer. And what's the question that every kid asks on long car trips? Are we there yet? So this is like, the Old Testament is like this long car trip. So you, end, you begin with this vision of God's reign over the nations that's completely shattered by human rebellion. God comes to Abraham and said, I'm going to restart. I'm not going to let you humans mess this up. This is a redo. I'm doing this thing over again. Through you, all the nations of the earth will then be blessed under my rule. And then the Old Testament becomes this long car trip where the people of God keep asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Israel keeps falling and failing and faltering. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. And then we come to the New Testament. And we come first to Jesus. And immediately we see signs that Jesus is beginning to reverse the curse. And he's beginning to reconcile the nations again. We see the gospel writers are communicating that Jesus holds the power of salvation and that in him God's intentions for this fractured humanity are being restored. And so you see these hints of this, like in Luke, in the birth narrative that we just read at Christmas time. It says that he will be a light for revelation to the ethnos. This Jewish baby will be a light to the ethnos, all of the nations. We see uh, in Matthew, he very scandalously includes these women in Jesus' family tree. Tamar, who was from Canaan. Rahab, who was a Jerichite and a prostitute. Nonetheless, Ruth was a Moabite and Bathsheba was a Hittite. So I love this quote from Ray Backey. He says, um, Jesus himself was an Asian-born baby of mixed-race background who in the first year of his life became an African refugee. <laughs> that Jesus himself is even in his own family tree is embodying God's vision for the reconciliation of the cultures. We see Jesus choosing his disciples, that he is constantly getting criticized by the religious establishment, by those who he chooses to gather around his table. We see his earthly ministry, that everything that he does for the Jewish people, he then replicates among the Gentiles, among the ethnos, to demonstrate that he is not just the savior for those like him, but he is the savior of the nations, of the, of the cultures. He calls out in Mark eleven seventeen, my house will be called a house of prayer for the ethnos. He says, this current arrangement is not working. My vision is to see all of the nations gathered under here. His final prayer in John 20 says, may they be one that the world would know that you have sent me. In his, in his death, he dies for the rebellion of humanity. In his resurrection, he rises to bring new life. And then his concluding commission that Lori has already quoted says, go therefore and make disciples of the ethnos, the nations. And so at the end of Jesus' life, you're asking that question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And what's the answer? No, still not yet. Why? Because Jesus ascended to heaven, and who are the disciples? A bunch of Jewish people, right? And so Jesus did not 
fulfill and accomplish the fulfillment of his own mission in his earthly life, but he gave it instead to the ministry of the Holy Spirit through his people. And so we get to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost arrived, and they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were indwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed, and they were asking questions, and then down here. Now listen, look at this. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. What do you think of when you think of long lists of people describing all the different nations of the earth. What should be coming to your mind? What is Luke trying to make you think of? Any thoughts, any ideas? How big the family is? Yeah, but there's a particular piece of scripture he's wanting you to remember. He's, he's wanting you to remember Genesis 10, the table of nations. This is, the, this is, a, re, this is a, a reversal of Babel. What do we see in Genesis 10? We see all the nations being gathered, and then God comes down and scatters them. And here we see the list of all the nations, and then God comes down, and what does he do? He unites them. It's a reversal of Babel right here in Acts 2. And so finally, the kids are in the back of the car. They're saying, are we there yet, Dad? Are we there yet, Dad? And finally, what do we get to say? Yes, we're there. And then what we see happening in Acts is we see the Holy Spirit breaking out across the face of the earth, gathering the nations. So for example, Antioch. What happens in Antioch is that the Christians begin perse being persecuted in Jerusalem, and so they begin to be scattered. Again, God is accomplishing his purposes through unusual means, and so God pushes the disciples out across the, 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 the face of Asia Minor, and the Christians come to a place called Antioch. Now, Antioch at the time was a very diverse city. It was the third largest city in the Roman world, 500,000 people. It also had a, it was intense crime and poverty, but also had a very open immigration policy because it was at the marriage of several rivers and seaports. And so they had this wide cultural mix of people, and there was lots of ethnic tension and race violence and mob violence. In fact, the city itself was segregated into wards, separating the different cultural groups that were in Antioch. And so what happened is a few Jewish Christians began sharing the gospel in the city of Antioch, and masses of people became Christians, and out of this developed this remarkable church. It was the first church made up of Greek-speaking people who were not Jewish and who actually represented all the different nations of the earth. People who were living as cultural enemies were now brothers and sisters in Christ. And I love this description of this, the, the leadership team of this early church, Acts 13. Now, they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, and then here's the leaders. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, if you were just reading through this quickly, you would not pick up on this. But look, this is, th these five leaders represent three different continents and four cultural groups. Simeon was from Niger. He was a black African from sub-Saharan West Africa. Lucius was from Cyrene, which is present-day Libya. Menaean was a Palestinian. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And Paul was a Jew from Asia Minor. 
So here's, you've got this crazy diverse leadership team that reflects the diversity of the first church plant at Antioch, and this is what is so remarkable. This is what it says of Antioch. It was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now, why would that be? Well, here, here's why I think. Everybody associates religion with culture, right? So, oh, he's from India. He must be a Hindu. Now, he's from Saudi Arabia. He must be Muslim. He's from Scotland. He must be a Presbyterian, right? <laughs> we always associate religion with culture. But suddenly, here's, all, here's this church, and they couldn't. They were like, oh, is that a Jewish church? No, is that a uh, Cyprian church? No, is that a... Uh, is, is, is that a church of people from West Asia? No, they couldn't typecast it. They couldn't associate the church with any particular culture. And so what did they do? They just called them Little Christ. They just named them by who they worshiped. Christians, Little Christ. And so what is so remarkable, friends, is that our name, Christians, comes from an explosion of the reconciliation of the cultures within the first plant of the church. That's our name flows out of that. Is that not amazing? We claim that. It's a great mark of the church. And then we see Paul, and I, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to go through this, but Paul speaks of this great mystery of the gospel that Jesus has taught. Paul is the, is the theologian of reconciliation. He talks about the mystery of the gospel. He says, oh, sorry. He says this, the The mystery was made known to me. This mystery is that the ethnos are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus of the gospel. Paul is, is I love what this guy, um, David Anderson, says that Paul is a gracist. Uh, he's, he's a gracist. He has this big vision of grace, and he's over and over again hammering home that grace has leveled the playing field and opened the doors wide for people of every culture to be gathered in the same family, that Jesus has torn down the dividing walls and has opened the way for God's vision of a reconciled humanity to be gathered within the church. He's a gracist. And then, of course, Revelation ends with this. After I looked, this is now the fourth chapter, consummation. I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could remember. Look, here we go again. From every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, in all languages. Do you remember that from Genesis 10? John is repeating that same phrase. Standing before the throne of Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What I want us to see here is that this vision for cultural reconciliation and cultural diversity within the people of God is not this like progressive political agenda. This has been at the heart of scripture and God's vision for humanity from the very start. And if anything, we gotta reclaim it. We gotta take it back from the way that that agenda has often been manipulated and misused. That this is one of the great visions that God has for his people. I love uh, just a few, a few recent commentators who have talked about this. Andrew Walls, who is a, a missiologist that, that our, our brother Richard knows well, um, talks about how this moment is an Ephesian moment, just like Paul was writing, that all of those cultures having to be gathered in Ephesus at the time, and he was writing about the calling of the church to reconcile them 
He says, this now is an Ephesian moment, especially in the life of the American church. Um, Tim Keller uh, says this, racial diversity is crucial for missional credibility. It has never been more crucial than it is today, given the society that we live in. John Piper has written a whole book about it, about how cultural diversity is a mark of a missionary church. He says it illustrates the truth that God created people of all races and ethnicities in his own image. It displays the truth that Jesus is not a tribal deity, but is the Lord of all. It demonstrates the destiny of the church is to be from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It exhibits the aim and power of the cross to reconcile us. And I thought there was more. It expresses the work of the Spirit to unite us in Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Cultural diversity is this great mark of the missionary church. So, have I convinced you? Some of you maybe I have. Some of you maybe I haven't. But if I have, what would we do? What do we do? Just look at us, you know, we're a bunch of white people. Sorry, Danny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so what should we do? Well, that's what this whole month is about. And, and that's what this working group is encouraging us. That's why they want us to do this. They, that Ron and Jennifer and others are wanting us to do this because they want us to learn and grow about this so that we can grow. And this is why they're really calling us, especially to examine how we can partner in a more deep level with the Christian Arabic church. That's one thing that we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks and what's that, what that's going to mean. So let me just lay down a few thoughts just to get us started together, things that we might begin thinking about that we can start putting into practice in the months and years to come, okay? Four R's. Four R's. You wouldn't, you're not surprised at my obsession with alliteration, okay? We're going to talk about uh, repentance. We're going to talk about... Um, I forgot the next one. Maybe you can tell me. <laughs> Relationships, renewal, and then resolve. Okay? So first, repentance. Um, there is a degree that we see happening over and over again in Scripture, and that I think we're called to today, to repent of the ways that we have allowed ourselves to be more shaped by the culture of the world rather than the culture of the Bible when it comes to our understanding of culture. Um, I love Peter in the Bible, because he's such an oaf, and I so relate to him on so many levels. Look, look at the Peter, okay? Peter was there at Pentecost. He saw when the Spirit dropped and reconciled the nations. What happens later to Peter in Acts 10? You know the story of Cornelius? This, you know, God comes to him and says, go to Cornelius, and Peter's like, uh-uh, I ain't going to no Gentile house. You know, he's not going to go, and even when he goes, even when God gives him this vision on the roof I don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. He goes, and the first thing he says to Cornelius when he gets there is, you know I'm not supposed to be here, right? <laughs> the first thing he says. And so, you know, God has to give him these hammer blows of grace to remind him of the gospel. God does like a little rerun of Pentecost in Cornelius' house where they're speaking in tongues and stuff to just to show him, I'm legit about this. I am seriously gathering the nations, and you are the firsthand witness to it. So Peter's like, oh, right, I was there for Pentecost. Now I remember. But later in Galatians, what happens? Paul shows up, and what does he see? He sees that Peter is again separating himself. And he says to him in Galatians 2.14, Peter, you are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. The gospel of grace has broken through. You have seen that your identity is now in Christ, not in your ethnic identity. And you are now called to cross that barrier and be a reconciled humanity with these brothers that you previously hated. Peter's like, oh, right. 
I forgot. And he repents again. And so I love this because, look, Peter was an apostle, right? He spent three years with Jesus. He was there at Pentecost. Peter wrote part of the Bible, okay? If Peter had to repent of his cultural idolatry, it is not very modest to think that I would not have to. You know what I mean? A very apostle of God. And so that's what I've had to learn. Um, my first experience of really, you know, I grew up in a super white bread community, and my first experience of dealing with any friend of color at all was my first year in college. My best friend that I met my first year in college, his name is Ramesh, he's from Sri Lanka. Some of you know Ramesh. And he decided to start this group to bring reconciliation between all the very racially segregated fellowship groups on campus. And he asked me to help him with it. And it was so difficult for me. I, he was forcing me to be friends with all these people of different cultures and races that I did not want to be friends with. And he pushed me to confront all of these things that I didn't know were inside of me. It was very icky to see these things inside of myself that I was having to turn away from. And that set me on like a 10-year journey of learning about my own culture as you know, someone descended from Western Europeans and the culture of others. And what does it mean for us to be brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, it, it got to the point where it was such a burden for me personally that I actually planted a multiracial church with an African-American American pastor named Don. And I pastored that church. It was, a, it was mostly a black church and a white church that I pastored with Don for eight years. About five years into that, three of my staff, three of my black staff came to me, said, we need to talk to you. And they sat me down and they said, this is very hard for us to say, but we see you over and over again prioritizing the concerns and the interests of the white families in this church. You can't see it. I know you can't, but you're doing it. And I, I looked at all three. I said, you think this is true? Mm -hmm. you, yes. And then I went to Don, my co-pastor. I said, do you know what they said to me? And he said, they're right. <laughs> it was so difficult. And then I, I began to realize that it, was bec it wasn't because I was doing anything conscious. It was because I had this sort of unconscious element within me that was the, the concerns of the white parents, especially in the way that we were doing children's ministry, made more intuitive sense to me because I'm a white parent, whereas the concerns of the black parents really didn't make any sense to me at all, and so I was virtually ignoring them. And so this was a very painful experience for me, but it, it was like one of these Peter experiences where I thought I had repented, but then I had to repent all over again, over and over again. So this is one of the things I think we're called to do as followers of Jesus is really take seriously. How have we been shaped by cultural idolatries? And how might we need to personally repent of it? It's not just personal either. It, in some ways, it can be even institutional and historic. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible sees sin as way worse than any of us ever do. And so we just tend to look at sin in a very personal way. But instead, in the Bible, we see sin as, as often historic and systemic and institutional. We see David repenting of the sins of his forefathers. We see Daniel repenting of the sins of the whole nation. We see people repenting of things that they didn't even take personal responsibility for. And so there's even ways, like we talked about last week, that even our institutions, our churches, our cultures, our city might be infected and broken by sin when it comes to culture that we haven't done personally ourselves, but that we passively participate in. Let me just give you an example of this. Um, I drive a 95 every day right past the, the, um, the clock tower 
You ever driven on that road? Who has ever driven on 95 past the clock tower? Just about all of us here. Let me tell you how that road got built. So in, 19, in 1946, this, this, pro, this project was proposed, and the city council, um, it, it was rejected because they proposed it right through the Jackson Ward neighborhood, which at the time was the most thriving black center of the entire United States except for Harlem. Center of entertainment, center of culture, um, and so it was rejected. So the city council turned to the Virginia State Assembly to override citizen opposition, and there was no black representation in the state assembly. And so in 1954, the Virginia State Assembly created the Richmond Petersburg Turnpike Commission and gave it the power of eminent domain. So four months later, they announced a turnpike will be built, and they drove the interstate through Richmond's most historic, prestigious black neighborhood. A thousand homes of black families were destroyed. These families were absolutely powerless. No representation, destroyed homes, separated half the neighborhood from the city center, blocking 31 streets, eliminating pedestrian pathways. Now, was it sin that motivated that? By all means. Is it sinful when I drive on 95 today? I'm not sure. I hope not, because I have to repent a lot. <laughs> so I might not, I'm not like actively sinning, driving on 95, yet I am passively receiving the benefits of the sins of my forefathers. You see that? And so, you know, I'm not, I, I've never called someone an N-word, or I've, I've never, you know, done something brutal to a person of another culture, but yet there are ways that we can even just participate in terribly broken and horrible systems because of the history of our land. And those are things that we even have to look at together and how we can resolve to do better in the future following Jesus more faithfully in the way that he understands culture. So, repentance, that's the first thing. Oh, and a wonderful example of this is First Presbyterian Church of Augusta. I put their link on there. It's a PCA church. Last year, they put out a statement that said, we and our fathers have sinned, which is a powerful admission of historic and communal sin that they admitted in their silence and complicity in the years of oppression during the civil rights movement in Augusta. None of those people were even alive during that time. Yet they are announcing their resolve, their repentance, committed to resolve. And that's one of the beautiful things about reform, the Reformed faith is that we have this big vision of sin and salvation, which I think is really beautiful. Okay, relationships. I'm going to finish just a second, okay? Um, in my own experience, coming into relationships with people who are culturally different is one of the most powerful things. And the purpose of this is not just friendship building, but actually for God's grace to be known in greater fullness. Um, you know, let me just give you an example of this. Sarah and I have been married for 16 years, and, you know, I obviously, I see the world like a man, because I'm a man. But after 16 years of marriage, I can now see the world a little bit more like a woman. In particular, Sarah, right? Like, in many situations, I instinctively know how Sarah would react, how Sarah would feel. And so, yes, I am still very much a man, but I have a diversified wisdom portfolio, right? Like, I'm, I'm able to see things from a slightly more nuanced perspective because of my shared life with a beautiful woman. You see that? So the same thing, like in my relationship with Don Coleman, um, Don, um, you know, he's black, he's from the inner city, he's very different than I am, he didn't ever finish college, I'm kind of up here in my head, he's very here in his heart. Um, we respond and react very differently to things. Sometimes I think he's crazy, sometimes he thinks I'm crazy. But over 12 years of doing side-by-side -side ministry with him, 
I actually understand the gospel better because of shared life with him, that I actually know Jesus more. Jesus is a multidimensional savior, and there is no way I will ever fully know him on my own. The only way that I can fully know him is when I understand how Jesus is expressed in these various cultural expressions of people who love him. And so that's what friendship does. It helps gives us understanding, but it also gives us a deeper understanding of the gospel. And so, like, I'm so excited about us deepening our relationship with the Christian Arabic church because the Christian Arabic church, our Arabic and Egyptian brothers and sisters understand the gospel in different ways than we do. They express the gospel. They worship in different ways than we do. And we can know the Lord and his grace differently and more sweetly and more fully because of that. Um, a third thing is renewal. Um, discipleship is about renewal. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about that, renewing of the mind, which means examining the ways that your thinking and behaving have been influenced by the idolatrous, sinful patterns of the world and allowing the gospel to reframe the way you think and live. One unbiblical way of thinking about culture that might be surprising to you is that idea of colorblindness. Has anybody ever heard that phrase before, colorblindness? This is a way that many, it actually started as a progressive idea, colorblindness, and for some very strange reason, it seeped its way into the evangelical church as a way to deal with people of diverse uh, cultures and differences. And so people say, oh, you know, I, you know, I don't see color, you know, everybody's the same. Friends, this is profoundly unbiblical, profoundly unbiblical. I mean, look at the Bible. Luke, in Acts 13, could have said there were five leaders of the church, period. And instead, he's wasted very expensive ancient ink to describe where each of those people were from. In Acts 2, he could have just said, a whole bunch of people were gathered in Jerusalem. Instead, what did he do? He, he listed every single one of those nations. In Revelation 21, it could, John could have written, a bunch of people from all the world were just gathered around the throne of God. Instead, he said, from every tribe and people and language and culture. The Bible is deeply tuned into culture because God intended the cultures to reveal his glory. And so God is not colorblind. The Bible is not colorblind. The church should not be colorblind. We are called to be deeply culturally and color aware and appreciative of the diverse ways that God's glory and his image is reflected in people. One thing that's funny about white people is that we often assume we don't have a culture, right? We use for terms like ethnic, you know, which basically means, oh, let's get some ethnic food, which basically means food white people don't usually eat, right? <laughs> uh, Ethnic. Um, it, also, it also, you know, um, can impact large things. That, Like when we think that we don't have an ethnic identity, it can mean that what I am is I'm just regular, right? I'm normal. But like those people are ethnic. <laughs> They're different. And so what that means is like the way that I like to worship and the way that I like preaching to be and the way that I like, you know, eating, and those are regular. Those are normal. And those other people are, you know, sort of on the fringe. And so what happens when you don't recognize that you have an ethnicity is what do you think happens when you say, oh, I'm colorblind, I don't see color? What do you think happens when a bunch of people get in the room and everyone's acting colorblind? Whose culture wins? The people with the dominant culture. The people who have the, the, the most power in a room, right? And so, you know, like when I was a kid, I watched, um, what was that show? Electric Company? Any of y'all Gen Xers remember Electric Company? Uh, remember that melting pot thing? It's like the great American melting pot, the great American melting pot, and all the, all the little guys from the different cultures are falling into the melting pot. And then what comes out at the bottom? Do you remember? This like mushroom soup. And, 
I mean, it was so disgusting. That was like the vision of America. Like we all get thrown into a pot and then we all just come out very bland. And that's not God's vision. His vision is not a melting pot. I love what John Stott, I put this quote, um, my mentor, John Stott. He said, true integration, unlike assimilation, is a two-way street. It involves cultural sharing, a genuine respect and interest in difference, not cultural submergence by one party to please the other. Instead of the melting pot metaphor, I prefer the mulligan stew. I like that. Everything goes into the pot and is stirred, but the pieces don't melt. In fact, a Native American friend said to me, we don't like the melting pot. Native Americans don't melt. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the biblical vision of community is not a melting pot, but mulligan stew, you know, that we each retain our distinctions, and we love one another because we see the image of God in one another, the glory of God. We had this, um, this thing at Easton Fellowship called the 75% rule, the 75% rule, and it went like this. You should never be happy with more than 75% of what happens in the worship service because that means that your personal cultural preferences are being dominant. Everyone should be equally unhappy with the worship, <laughs> right? The 75% rule. Everyone is equally unhappy because we're giving, we're loving one another. We're giving each other honor by honoring one another's preferences as a way of love. We've already been experimenting this with a little bit, church. Did you know that? You know, we, we came together and we brought our organ in, and we brought our drum set in, we brought our guitars in, and a lot of people weren't happy, and we struggled with each other. And guess what's happened? Something beautiful has happened. Because instead of saying, oh, we're going to be like a bland mushroom soup, or we're going to each segregate to our different parts of the building to do the thing that I prefer, that's not God's vision. Instead, what we've done is we've brought together and tried to create a mulligan stew together. And frankly, I think it's been beautiful. I love worshiping with my elderly brothers and sisters. I love worshiping with the little ones. I love... And, you know, as we explore a relationship with the Christian Arabic church or as we become more hospitable to other immigrant groups that might be in the West End, like, that should be reflected as we seek to bring glory and honor to God. Okay, so I'm not, we're not going to, like, enact the 75% rule here. Don't worry. I'm just giving that as an example. So a, a truly biblical church will not be colorblind, but will talk openly about difference, will help be, people be comfortable with their own cultural identity, and help to really respect and honor the cultural identity of others, because God created the culture and because we are gracious. We don't have to be threatened by difference. We can see that God extends grace through Jesus to the cultures of the nation. And so now through us, we can extend that same hospitality as well. Finally, I'll just say resolve. And what I mean by that is Paul was very courageous. This is hard. This has been a hard journey for me um, over 20 years in this journey. And it's a hard journey to learn about yourself, to learn about the way maybe you've hurt someone without realizing it. Um, I would encourage you to, to read one of the books maybe that I have written on, on the back or um, get to know or develop a friendship with someone of a different culture or um, get to know Richmond's past. Read Ben Campbell's book, Richmond's Un Unhealed History. Learn about how Richmond has ended up the way that it is. These are all things that we can continue to do when it gets hard um, and when we might want to give up. I'll just end it like this. I love God, and this is why I love God. First of all, we are not polytheists, okay? Polytheists believe in many gods and many persons, basically different wills, different desires, um, sometimes at odds. Monotheists, many gods, many persons, all diversity, no unity. And this sometimes is, frankly, the agenda of the United States right now. Diversity for the sake of diversity. All diversity, no unity. Diversity, diversity, diversity. You know, it's nauseating. 
this is not the biblical vision. That's a polytheistic vision. <laughs> On the other hand, monotheists, like Muslims and our Jewish friends, believe in one God and one person. So all unity, no diversity within God. But who is God? Who is our God? Our God is a trinity. One God, three persons. Unity in diversity. God says, let us make them in our image. Unity and differentiation. Let us, our glory be reflected in the beautiful cultural expressions that we've created men and women to be in. That's our God. That's the God of the gospel. And that's beautiful. Don't you think? Don't you think that's beautiful? 